welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. I'm Dan Oshinsky. I run Inbox Collective, a consultancy that works with newsrooms, nonprofits, and indie newsletters. I work with teams to help them figure out how to use email to get more readers and ultimately make money and optimize their email strategy. Before this, I ran the newsletter strategy at New Yorker and at BuzzFeed. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the Remote Work Drive podcast, Dan. Um, you have a really cool story that in the sense of how, like, working and running newsletters for really big media organizations um, to now like running your own consultancy. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what that kind of transition was like? It's been an interesting one, less of a struggle than I feared or worried that it might be. I was someone who, going back to college, I went to the University of Missouri, journalism school there, had always wanted to be involved in digital transformation at news organizations and, and you know, learned a lot at some of the places I worked, places like BuzzFeed, places like The New Yorker about how to be a part of making those changes. And in the end, actually switching to the kind of indie consultant model has been a really good fit for what I'm interested in because I get to be a much more active participant in helping shape lots of different organizations and helping them make this digital transformation. It's funny that, you know, when I first started doing this or thinking about this and going back to the Mizzou days, Email was never really something that was on my radar. You know, back in the zoo, we talked a lot about social media. We talked a lot about SEO. Email was a little bit forgotten, even though it was the thing that pretty much all of us had first used when we started using the internet. And over the years, as I worked with lots of different teams, as I launched my own newsletters, I just got to see how powerful email could be. It's funny to me now that of all the things I could be helping teams out with, if you'd asked me, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, you're going to be working with all these newsrooms and nonprofits and individual writers. I would have thought it would have been on something, you know, futuristic, sexy, uh, you know, newfangled, something we couldn't have predicted yet. Definitely would not have guessed that it would be like, no, I'm helping a lot of teams figure out how to get better at email and using email. But turns out all these years later, email is still super, super powerful. So it's a really good fit for what I'm interested in. It's a really good fit for uh, what clients and, you know, a lot of the orgs that I work with really need, which is help figuring out how do we build relationships with readers? How do we convert readers to paying supporters? How do we get the most out of our audience development strategy? Absolutely. There's so many things I want to tackle in there. Um, so I want to say like you've been out on your own for at least a couple or a few years now. 2019, summer, summer of 2019 is when I left the New Yorker. Yeah. Congrats. And, you know, less than a year into it, you would then have a pandemic. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, it was not lost on me that it was uh, it was interesting timing. I actually feel really fortunate about the timing in two ways. One is that I had always planned on leaving my job later on. So when I left the New Yorker, my wife is now a nurse. She uh, had worked uh, in hospitals as a social worker for almost a decade, went back to school to become a nurse. This was before the pandemic, was entering uh, the summer of 2019 into her last year of nursing school. 
And I said, you know, I, I'm not sure if it makes sense for me to be starting my own thing when you're still in school. Maybe it makes more sense for me to do this afterwards when you're in a position where you have a job and making money and we're not actively spending money on, you know, you to you instead of money come going coming out the door every quarter to go to to go to school. We have money coming in and healthcare and all these sorts of things. And she said, no, you know, you have a lot of momentum right now to launch this business. You should do it sooner rather than later. I had really envisioned that I would do it in, you know, May or June of 2020 after she graduated and got a job. And Sally was great, really pushed me, you know, you have the momentum, do it now. I got really lucky in that respect because I launched sooner than I would have. I don't know if I would have done this if it had been May, June, 2020. I'm not sure I would have been running out the door at the New Yorker to say, now's a great time for me to start my own business. So I got lucky with the timing there. The other thing that ended up being lucky was because of the pandemic, so many businesses made a more aggressive shift towards remote work and towards investing in digital strategy. You know, how are we going to reach people right now? Oh, email is a really big part of that. And so many organizations were fundraising. They were using their email lists to keep readers informed about what was happening. So email became more important to a lot of the clients that I would go on to work with. So in a in a funny kind of way, the pandemic accelerated a couple pretty positive trends for newsrooms that in terms of investing more in email, trying to figure out how to own the audience relationship, how to convert readers to paying supporters, and people being really comfortable with the idea of remote work. I had been you know, dating back to when I first started this using Zoom to do calls with clients. I had some of them, but a lot of my work was in person. A lot of my work was focused on uh, organizations that were based in New York, which is where I'm based. And when the pandemic really hit in spring of 2020, suddenly all these organizations around the world started reaching out. And it just really opened my eyes to, well, you know, I can do work outside of New York City. I can be in a position where the majority of my clients don't work in the place that I work. That doesn't really matter because now their staff isn't at the office anyway. Everything's remote. So it accelerated in a funny way, some positive trends for me, even if on the whole, obviously, the pandemic was a very negative thing for the world. For being a citizen of the world, the pandemic was an extremely negative thing for my business. There were some silver linings. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Put it. Going back to the summer of 2019, um, when you just decided to go off on your own at that point in time, I know a lot of people including myself in some regards, definitely can struggle with that making that transition from employee to now I'm a business owner. Did you have any sort of struggles with that or any mindset shifts that you had to make within those first six months? So the biggest thing for me was that I had launched this, this Google Doc that I call Not a Newsletter in January 2019 and had built up an audience. People could sign up for an email whenever I publish a new one. I wrote this thing monthly, email strategy, tips, links, and it built up a really nice audience. By the time I left The New Yorker, I had about 1,700 people on the list. And on a weekly basis, I was getting emails from folks saying, you know, we have this budget to invest in email. Who can we talk to? Kept getting this request. At some point, my wife, who's pretty smart, said, 
people keep asking you who the person is they can talk to, they're looking for you. They're hoping that you're going to be the one who says, yes, I can do it. Oh, okay. So I got really lucky in that the thing that I was most worried about, how do I build up a client base, was less of a factor at the start because so many of my readers already liked me and wanted to work with me. In fact, when I I put out the, the, the note that I was leaving the New Yorker in a couple of weeks and I wanted to set up calls to chat with people to get to know them. I, I got in the first couple of weeks I had, I remember it was about 70 to 75 calls with readers on my list, all of whom were interested in working with me. It was exciting. All of a sudden, this huge pool of readers were like, yes, we would be interested. Tell us more about how we could work with you. That's fantastic. So that was the part I was most worried about. Will people actually want to pay me to, to do this sort of work? Uh, who am I going to be cold calling people? Am I going to be showing up on people's doorsteps saying, you know, hi, I'm Dan. I can help you with email. Would you like to hire me? That turned out to be not so much of a worry. The other thing was I didn't really think of it at the start as a business. Only in the last year or so have I really started to shift my mindset from I'm running a little consulting operation. It's just me with my clients offering guidance and support in exchange for money, which is, of course, a business. But I just never thought of it that way. I think a part of it was just a mental shift because the idea of running a business seemed a little scary, a little intimidating. Well, don't I have to have a business plan? Don't I have to be an MBA? Don't I have to have some sort of special skills to do this? But when I thought about it as, no, well, you know, I offer support, guidance, coaching, advice, research, work, all these sorts of things for clients in exchange for money. Oh, well, I'm just part of the team. They're paying me to be part of the team. So that helped too. It didn't seem that scary, the idea of me helping out these organizations, obviously in exchange for money. And as the business grew and as I developed more revenue streams, the Google Doc got bigger. I started doing things like advertising and affiliate and I have different sorts of consulting. I'm doing paid talks. When I looked at the, the, the big Google sheet that keeps track of you know, where all the revenue comes in, which revenue streams are growing, I started to think about it more as, oh, this is really a business. I'm long-term trying to build out something more than just a consulting operation. It's not just me talking with folks. This is, this is a business with multiple revenue streams, a business that could grow in ways that I feel are appropriate. But I slowly grew into that. I don't think in the first two years I ever told people, you know, hi, I'm Dan, and I run a business called Inbox Collective. It was always, even to this day, I'm Dan, I'm a consultant who runs this, you know, little email operation called Inbox Collective. I help newsrooms and nonprofits and indie writers with their email strategy. Uh, lately, though, it's been changing, but I, I kind of eased into that, into that role. I, I don't know if I would have been super comfortable on day one advertising, you know, hi, I'm Dan, I run a business. Also, I'll say a lot of the stuff that I associated with businesses, I didn't do. I still to this day don't have business cards for the business. At the start, I didn't really have a website for Inbox Collective. If you went to inboxcollective.com, it linked out to a set of Google slides that explained some of the ways I could help people with an email address to reach out to me. It never really felt like a business because, well, a business felt like a brick and mortar thing. It felt like a place that should have an office and it should have employees and it should have all sorts of systems. And it was me on Zoom and my laptop talking with people on a daily basis. I don't know. I think it was just a mental thing at the start. I'm more comfortable with it now. 
Yeah. Okay. I have so many questions to ask from this. I would say in general, like I can definitely relate to a lot of those things. I started, went off on my own about six, about eight months before you did. Um, and to this day, like, you know, four years in, I still don't have business cards. <laughs> and now I kind of wear it with, with a little bit of pride because why do you need business cards if you can go that long? Um, I'm guessing one of the shifts that you probably made to go into going from, hey, I'm just a solo consultant to, hey, now I'm actually building a, building a business was um, when you decided to finally go out and actually, you know, hire people to help out with things. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit more about what that, you know, process was like for you? So the advice that I find myself giving to a lot of teams and that I have to repeat to myself as well is whatever it is you're doing, whatever strategy you have, you have to make it work for you. And for me, hiring has meant identifying different places where I can bring people on to expand the work that I do or improve the work that I do or just take on things that I don't want to do, I suppose, or the other kind of category. So there are really two places that I brought on additional help. One, and it's been in a very limited sense, but I have brought on a contractor for one specific larger project where I just needed some extra hands and help. And it was a project that I would have said no to. Otherwise, I just didn't really have the time for it. But I knew that I could apply a little time and bringing on this extra person was super helpful in getting that project off the ground, doing the work. It was worth me doing this in order to say yes to, to this one particular client. I would definitely say yes to a, to a contractor, a subcontractor in the future on a you know a case-by-case -case basis. Hey, this is something I want to do. I could bring on somebody for a little bit of help where it makes sense. And then the other places have been, as I built up and launched inboxcollective.com, this website, you know, it's where I tell people about the consulting that I do, but I'm also now publishing weekly on inboxcollective.com case studies, success stories, how-tos about email strategy and monetization. And I'm very aware that, you know, when even for a commitment like once a week, to write 52 really good articles a year by myself doesn't make sense. I just can't commit to doing that. I, I mean, I suppose I could if I significantly scaled back the consulting work that I did or were saying no to other things. But if I want to maintain the level of you know client work that I do and doing the talks that I do and writing this Google Doc, I don't also have time to write 1,500 words, 2,500 words a week on email strategy in a way that's going to be useful to my readers. So that's where I brought on, uh, you know, a, an assistant managing editor essentially to uh, help me. Her name is Alex Hazlett. She's so great uh, at help me with editing, processing stories, keeping track of the Trello board, coordinating with the freelancers that we've brought on. Um, we're, you know, paying writers to write for us. I'm super proud of that. It's, you know, this is not a volunteer thing. It's people, we're, we're paying people and paying them pretty well to come and write original work for inboxcollective.com. Alex helps coordinate with those writers. A lot of them come to me first and then I'll say, hey, that sounds great. But Alex is the one who's going to commission the story. She's going to be the one who helps edit. She'll bring me in for certain types of stories to say, hey, will you take another look at this piece? What do you think? 
particularly things she's done a lot of work in the email space but sometimes there are like really technical email stories where she goes you know i'm really good on the newsletter side of things best practices but this concerns you know email deliverability it's a little outside my wheelhouse and so yeah yeah i'll come in to help edit those but she takes them 85 percent of the way to the finish line and that's been huge it's allowed us to maintain to this point we started the website uh over the summer in July, I believe. And so we're, you know, a couple months in publishing weekly, it's going really well. And we have this nice backlog of, of content. And so it really makes sense to have help there. There's also uh, another young woman um, who Alex found for us, uh, who's, her name, her, name, her name is Zoe Lambert. She's a student at the university, uh, or sorry, Ohio University. I always get confused because someone who went to the University of Missouri, east and west of the Mississippi River, East the Mississippi River, it's state name, then university. West, it's the university of state name. Uh, she's at Ohio University, and she's great. She's been helping us out. I can go to her and say, hey, we have this story. Can you actually produce it on our website, handle some of the graphics and images, get it up in WordPress? And that's been a huge time saver for me, too. I recognize that uh, other people are capable of doing this work and I can pay them fairly for the work. And that allows me to focus on the things that I think I'm probably best at. So, so much of the business has also been picking my spots, you know, bringing on freelancers, bringing on additional help where it makes sense. So I can grow in small ways. And then maybe down the road, who knows, will I hire from the, you know, full-time folks in the future? Possibly. I don't really know what this looks like in a year or two. Uh, but I'm really comfortable with the team that I've kind of assembled right now. They're they're making it a lot easier for me to grow this entire operation. Absolutely. Um, can, going back to it sounds like one of the key like pieces for you was bringing on a managing an assistant managing editor. Can you maybe go through the process of what it was like to hire and onboard her so that she was going to be able to kind of take in like run with her within a role? Yeah, and I think I accidentally knocked her down a level of, of title that, that was not deserving. I would just usually refer to her as my managing editor, but for some reason I added the word assistant there. She is assistant to no one. Uh, she just manages the thing and she's great at it. Alex was somebody who I'd known for a while. Actually, uh, it's funny, I first met her a bunch of years back when she applied for a job at The New Yorker. I, I had been looking at her uh, to, to try to bring her on potentially at the New Yorker. And we just really hit it off and stayed in touch over the years. And we'd had some conversations about newsletters. She had had ideas for newsletters. And at some point I, I pitched her on this idea that, you know, she could come on and, and help uh, with this, you know, production of the website, producing stories, writing stories, editing stories, coordinating with freelancers. Um, Alex is remarkably organized, ridiculously organized, and it's, she's just somebody who we, it's a lot of, you know, email and occasional check-ins and chats, some in-person stuff, because she's also based here in New York, but we try to check in over email every couple days, um, and she just stays on top of it. This is not the only thing she does. She does a lot of uh, outside freelancing and other work as well. I have, uh, you know, the, the way the contract is set up, I have a certain number of hours of her time every single month, and I'm really grateful for those. And I try not to waste her time too much with other stuff. But it was at the start, you know, having some conversations and making sure we were aligned on the types of stuff that would make sense, checking in, 
always making sure that she knows, you know, I know how I can support her. She knows how she can support me, vice versa. Um, we've done some documentation. So for things like when we brought on Zoe, I put together this huge Google doc that explains like how to build out different stories. Um, some of this really she brought to the table. She really wanted to use Trello, for instance, to keep track of the editorial calendar. Great, let's do it. She set those sorts of things up. But in this case, because of the nature of the role, I mean, she's really been given her the freedom to say, you know, design this role in the way that makes the most sense for you. Um, and it's, you know, she's kind of running the publishing arm of inboxcollective.com with my support. It's, I feel really lucky to have that. I, I, she does a great job with the, the, the time that she puts in. Um, I'm really proud of the stories we've done, but this wasn't a situation where, you know, if I was to bring on a full-time staffer and they were going to help me with the consulting, it would be a very different sort of story in terms of the work and the training and documentation. This was a much lighter touch. And that's part of, you know, mostly due to, to, to Alex's skill and organization abilities, um, that it. I felt comfortable with her as, as, you know, a key member of the team that I could bring on without requiring a lot of handholding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that makes a ton of sense. Did you find that, like, I suspect you had quite a bit like managerial, managerial roles, like in past roles when you were an employee, but do you find now that like, kind of that you are a manager and a business owner that you've had to like make any mindset shifts or any different approaches to how you kind of lead your team? Yeah. I mean, I'm a much more hands-off manager right now than I was at other places. You know, a place like BuzzFeed, I had a team of at 1.5 people working with me. And so I was super involved. I mean, I sat three feet away from all of them and we were chatting on a regular basis and I had check-ins and uh, on a weekly basis with all of them, a lot of meetings, a lot of like strong goal setting, you know, hey, what are we trying to hit? How, you know, where are your personal goals? Where are the team's goals? How do we make things work for you? Career development was a big part of that. This is not really the case with what I'm doing right now. Alex has a, a super specific role within the org and a, a really specific mandate. And also we're at a very similar level in terms of you know, age and experience have had similar sorts of roles in newsrooms. And so, you know, there have been times that we've chatted about kind of where she wants to go and how I can help support her with those sorts of things. But it's just a different sort of managerial role. I'm pretty hands-off um, with the exception of, you know, there's two parts of where I'm pretty hands-on. I'm pretty hands-on and paying the checks and I'm pretty hands-on uh, when it comes to uh, you know, occasional, you know, edits. Hey, this story needs a, another look. Can you go through and help suggest some things? Sure, I'll do that. But otherwise, no, I'm pretty hands-off. It's very different than the managing that I would have done. Again, if I brought on somebody, you know, if I brought on someone five years out of college to work with me and be full-time with the business and I wanted to grow them and, and really groom them and or the role, completely different situation in terms of how I would treat it. Uh, but with with this case, yeah, it's just a little different than the work that I've done in the past. Not not in a, in a bad way, just different. <laughs> Absolutely, and it sounds like it really wasn't until like in the last year, maybe two years, where you really made the decision to be like, hey, I'm going to scale this beyond 
just myself? Were there kind of, you know, milestones or things, you know, events that happened that made you realize and go, hey, like, I think I need to, I think I'm ready to bring on additional people. So, yes. In fact, when I first started talking with Alex, it was in late winter, early spring of 2021. And I said, I really want to do this this year. Great, let's do it. She was in, we signed a contract, I got a certain number of her hours. And then things just got busy with work. I had new clients coming on board. And I frankly really messed this up because she was great. I wanted to work with her, but I was in this position where I was going, okay, well, we got to launch a website and we got to commit to publishing and I have to go find sponsors for this. And I wasn't totally ready to do that because I had all this extra work that was paying me and paying the bills over here. Uh, and it was hard for me to figure out, well, how do I, if I'm going to do this sort of thing, I'm going to have to say no to something else. How do I say no to clients who are paying me and paying me well to do this work to go off and write articles for this website that at this moment will pay me nothing? <laughs> and so there was a period of a couple months where I, I really, you know, Alex was incredibly patient with me, but I made a promise to her and just didn't deliver on it. And then as we got towards the fall, uh, we, we regrouped and I just said, you know, look, I'm, I, know, I know we said this. Um, I, I think I need a little more time to regroup, but I still want to do it. We caught back up uh, a few months later. I was in a better place. I said, all right, I feel comfortable with kind of the business, the, the plan for how we're going to monetize this advertising and affiliate. I have the revenue to actually come and pay you. Here's let's do this. We set up a new contract committed to a certain number of hours. We started commissioning stories. Um, I carved out specific windows of time to write and get the website up and running. I basically took a week where um, I cleared all the calls from my schedule, left New York. Uh, I went out of town and all I did was get the website up and running and write, do a bunch of writing and came back and was like, all right, the website is live. These articles are live. Here's when we're going to start publishing. But for me, the realization was that I just couldn't do it on my own. And that even with a little bit of help, there was still stuff that where I was the blocker. I was the bottleneck and the problem. And she was great and ready to go. And I wasn't. And so that realization for me was the, oh, you know, Dan, one, if you're going to make a commitment, make the commitment, be ready to go. Don't say yes before you're ready. You don't need to. And two, know where you're going to need help. Because looking back, if I had wanted to want launch this website in 2021, I could have, but I would have had to gone out and paid a developer to build out this website. It's all stuff that I felt really comfortable doing on my own. And I was happy to do on my own. I had a certain vision for what, what I wanted it to look like. And that was fine, but I couldn't do building a website, launching a website, landing sponsors, writing articles, and all the consulting work that I was doing. I had to make some choices. So I think for me, the realization came in 2021, where I just realized there's a lot you have to do. You have to pick and choose your spots. You have to find great people who can help take that burden off of you. And also, you have to build in slow and thoughtful ways, because 
I have a thousand things that I'm excited to do. I have so many ideas for projects I'm interested in trying at some point. I can't do them all today. I can't do them all next month. There's stuff that is on my list that I would love to do next year that I probably won't get to. And I have to be okay with the idea that some stuff has to wait. Absolutely. And as founders, we're always pulled into a million and one different directions. Oh, yeah. What is your framework or like mental models for making for deciding what to focus on next? So I try at this point to do little tests. This comes back to the, the mindset that I had at BuzzFeed. At BuzzFeed, I really learned that if you're going to launch something, you want to launch it relatively quickly, put it out there and see how people respond to it before deciding whether or not you want to commit more to the idea. Whether it was launching these newsletter courses, short run kind of automated series to teach people new skills, whether it was watching BuzzFeed launch new video series or projects. I mean, that was a place where there were plenty of things that worked and worked incredibly well. I mean, weird little experiments that became things like BuzzFeed Tasty or the podcast network that was the BuzzFeed started as smaller projects. But then there were also things that we would launch that nobody talks about anymore because, well, they didn't work. Uh, to this day, go around, aside from a very small handful of people who worked at BuzzFeed, no one will tell you about the project that existed that we were all very excited about called Star.me. It was an exciting social network experiment that felt a little like Tumblr and a little like Twitter and didn't go anywhere. And BuzzFeed invested some into it and put it out into the world and readers didn't respond to it. So we stopped doing it. Um, I still try to use that mentality today. Hey, you got to start small, start quickly, see how people respond and then go from there. So for me, if there's something that I can do and I can start quickly with it or test it out first, that's where I get excited. Um, that might mean putting an article or a piece of content out into the Google Doc first before I publish a series on it. It might mean giving a webinar or talk on a topic and then seeing if there's a lot of response to it and then deciding to do more. Uh, and sometimes it's finding partners like this past fall I did my first multi-day email workshop with a bunch of different news organizations. Uh, and that was done. It was in, in, in Copenhagen in Denmark with a, a great guy over there, Jan Birkenmos. Uh, and he has done a lot of these workshops. So he was an awesome partner to help get the first one off the ground. And so I got a chance to test out the model and see if it worked and then go, oh, this was really good. People respond to all of this. How do I do more of these? And sometimes there's more stuff than I can realistically do. Then I just have to prioritize what I'm most excited about. I also find often if I have an idea, I typically put it down. You know, sometimes I buy a domain. Sometimes I'll, you know, write it on a yellow legal pad or map out a strategy in a Google Doc. And then I'll let it sit there and I'll put a note in my to-do list, like come back to it in a month and see if I come back in a month and I'm still excited about the idea. Because often I'll be super excited about an idea. And then I'll come back a month later and look at it and just go like, no, I'm not that excited about this anymore. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't drop everything to try this because I was really excited about it in the moment. And then I thought about it a little more and I kind of worked on it a little more. And as the more I worked on it, the less I was raring to go. And okay, that's good. Sometimes I just need to hold off. Usually if I come back a month later and I'm still excited about it, oh, that usually means it's something that's worth doing. It's something that I want to chase down. I guess I've more than anything else just accepted that I can't do it all. 
and I have to say no to certain things. Sometimes I have to say no today in order to be said, in order, now try this again. Sometimes I have to say no today to something I'm excited about so I can say yes tomorrow to something that I'm even more excited about, something that can be even bigger for the business. Yeah, that's such a smart way to think about it is just like, you know, hey, if you're still excited about it a month later, it's probably worth doing. But yeah, it kind of keeps you from like way too much shiny object syndrome. What's on the topic of things you're excited about? What are some of the projects that you have kind of in the pipeline that you're most excited about in, you know, December and early 2023? So continuing to build out the website and make it the best possible resource that it can be for someone who's trying to use email to build a business. That's probably the number one thing right now. And trying to figure out what I can write, who else we can bring on. It's fun to be able to say we in this case, because it's me and Alex and Zoe and some other folks, who else we can bring on to uh, contribute articles and ideas that are going to advance this site and make it better. So that's been a huge thing. And I'm, I'm super excited about the possibilities there. I think the site can be, you know, it's going to take time, but can be an amazing resource in the long run. And I've already seen a lot of the great results and feedback from folks who've read stories and go, oh, we want to try surveys now. We want to get better about email accessibility. We're thinking about monetization in a different way because of something you wrote. Awesome. That's great. And then the other thing in the short run is, uh, testing out a series of newsletter dinners, small private conversations among people who you know, operate in the newsletter space. And the folks over at uh, Who Sponsors Stuff, uh, Ryan and Jesse are partnering with me on these mm -hmm. and they've been amazing. Uh, we're doing the first one of these uh, this month when we're taping in the month of November, 2022. And uh, really excited about it. We're going to do the first one, um, see how it goes. But based on the feedback we've gotten so far, the hope would be that we could do more of these. You know, how do we get 10 to 20 people in the room uh, for conversations around this space, you know, email, design, content strategy, growth, monetization, deliverability? And also find good partners, you know, advertising partners who we can bring in to advance the conversation. So like for this first one, we're bringing in Louis Nichols from Sparkloop. Um, he's doing awesome things over at Sparkloop with their uh, referral program, partner program. And we thought it would just be an awesome person to, to speak to the room about what he's seen because he works with so many publishers. And we really want them to be, you know, private spaces where people can learn and grow. So the goal is, hey, if these work well, this first one goes well, we're, we're reaching out to other, you know, sponsors, other folks who want to attend these. We'd love to do more of them in 2023 and have that be another way to, you know, engage the email community, serve people, uh, foster conversation and community among people who don't always get to talk to one another and to do it in a way that, you know, is different than a big conference, than a webinar. Like we were excited about the idea of getting people in the room together. Uh, hopefully the, you know, I, I, <laughs> I'm hopeful that the state of the world with everything happening, you know, obviously the last couple of years, getting people together in a room wouldn't have always been feasible. So I'm hopeful that uh, whatever happens in the next couple of months, that it's possible to do these dinners because it would certainly be a lot of fun. Those are the website and the dinners are the two big things.
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and before I wrap up, I always like to ask a couple of lightning round questions. Sure. What's one book you'd recommend that all, let's say, you know, leaders, whether it's founders or marketing leaders, should read? That's a really, really good question. Uh, I'm blanking on what that Neil Postman book is called now. <laughs> oh, goodness. It's, you know, at the end of the day on a Friday when recording these, and sometimes I forget my own name. There was a book I read a bunch of years ago by Neil Postman, who's, who's long since passed, that was called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it's about, it's kind of, it takes the, that the, 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 the medium is the message idea and advances it a few steps further. It's, it's from the, the eighties, the book's almost, I think 35 years old at this point. And still is one of those works that when I go back at it and look at it, I, I think a lot about the channels that we work on and how they shape the discussions and communities that we try to build. I think about that one a lot. Um, yeah, that's the one that really comes to mind to start. Awesome. And if you could have coffee with any historical figure, who would you choose and why? <laughs> uh, well, one, I'm not really a coffee person. This surprises folks. My wife drinks about a pound and a half, or, you know, the largest amount of coffee that you can do. We joke that the Dunkin' Donuts moved a block closer to us here in New York because we spend so much money with them. I'm more of a tea person. Uh, what would I pick if I could pick just a single person from history? You know, I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to pick a historical figure. It's someone I think about a lot because I, I live here in New York City, and this is where the Oshinsky family moved to. Um, the Oshinsky family and my wife's family, by you know my mom's side, they all came here from Eastern Europe 100, 110 years ago, um, getting out of what was happening in Eastern Europe and, and coming to America. I would love to have a conversation with my great grandparents, sit them down at dinner and find out about their goals and dreams, the stuff they were hoping for the next generations because they came. It's funny now that I've returned to New York because I grew up in Washington, DC because they came here. This was the place they wanted to be. I would love to have a conversation with them about, you know, what, what were your hopes and dreams? What do you want from these next generations? Um, also would be kind of funny for me to try to explain my job to them. Cause I don't, I don't believe I probably could in a real way. <laughs> yeah. That's such a cool and thoughtful answer. Well, it's been really, really great having you on the remote work drive podcast. Uh, Dan, where can listeners find you online? So a uh, great question. I can be found of course, at inboxcollective.com. That's where we're publishing all the original stories. I write a monthly email call or it's a google doc but it's you can skip the email version as well uh not a newsletter.com there's the link there to sign up uh you can find me on twitter but who knows by the time this podcast comes out maybe not at the rate twitter is going who knows if that'll be around next week or in a month from now uh and i'm i'm also on linkedin i write a lot there as well awesome well thank you again thanks for having me it's been fun Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.